this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. From Sonali Dev, acclaimed author of A Bollywood Affair, comes one of the fall's must-read romance novels, The Bollywood Bride. Bollywood's favorite ice princess, Rhea Parkar, finds herself caught up in a scandal in Mumbai, so she decides to hide out and wait it out at her cousin's wedding in Chicago. But running into the love of her life against the backdrop of a big, colorful Indian wedding turns up a storm of emotions that just can't be suppressed. In a starred review, Kirkus called The Bollywood Bride a bright, beautiful gem that offers a glimpse of a rich culture and enhances the book's overt and subtle messages of love, compassion, hope, and common ground. So The Bollywood Bride is now available everywhere books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 126, recording a little late on Monday, October 5th. I'm Amanda Nelson. I'm here with Swapna Krishna, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com and panels.net. Swapna is a contributing editor at Book Riot and is also the managing editor of Panels, which is our sister site, all about comics. Um, So she is the me over there, if that makes sense. If you haven't checked out panels, please do. Um, I'm in the driver's seat this week for the Book Riot podcast, which is a first for me. So I apologize in advance if I mess anything up or bore you guys to tears, but I'm going to try really hard not to. Jeff and Rebecca are both out traveling. Um, so yeah, they when the, whatever, how's it go? When the cats are away, the mice will play, except I don't want to be a mouse. That's weird. <laughs> That's a, they handed but, us the reins. Yeah, we got the go. keys to the castle. So many animal metaphors. <laughs> mice and cats and keys and whatever. Um, so thank you for filling in and coming to be. You've not been on this show, have you? I have not. It's very exciting. I've um, filled in on the panels podcast a few times, but this is my first time on the Book Riot podcast, though I have uh, been listening to this podcast since long before I was staff at Riot. So it's very exciting. Well, look at that. I look know. how far we've come. Your star has risen. It has. Um, so before we get started, I wanted to remind you guys that Book Riot Live is coming up soon, presented by book witty. And the thing that I wanted to remind you about um, on this podcast that's cool and neat and really exciting about Book Riot Live is that it's going to be super interactive, which I don't know if y'all go to a lot of reader conferences, but I've gone to my fair share. And it's a lot of like you sit in panels and then you sit in line at signings and then you sit around waiting for your phone to charge off on a corner somewhere. It's just a lot of sitting. But we really wanted Book Riot Live to be an interactive, fun, participatory thing. And that's how we've designed it. So when you come, you're not just going to be a witness to cool book stuff. So there is going to be cool book stuff for you to witness, but you're also going to be a participant. So a lot of our panels are going to incorporate audience participation. Um, we're doing Alas, Naughty Droid, a live performance of Shakespeare's Star Wars, which I think I've been drafted to play an Ewok somehow. I don't, I don't know how that happened, but we'll see how that goes. I'm going to be an Ewok. Uh, we're going to have Bookish Jeopardy, uh, Pictionary with, um, oh, it's comics. Comic, two comics. It's Lucy Nisley and Wendy yes. Shu. And yes, I'm so thanks. excited. I knew you would have that information. Uh, they're going to be doing Pictionary, which who better to play Pictionary than two comic book illustrators? Oh, yeah. That's going to be awesome. Uh, Get Booked and Dear Book Nerd are recording live at Book Riot, as is this main podcast. I think all of our podcasts. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. 
Uh, but Get Booked specifically and Dear Book Nerd will be taking audience questions. And the episode of Get Booked, which is my show, um, my podcast that I host uh, based around personalized reading recommendations, is going to be all romance. And my guest that week is going to be Sarah McLean, who is an amazing romance novelist. So if you've got romance questions that you want answered, come on down to Book Riot Live and you can ask Sarah McLean to her face. Uh, we're doing a Wattpad writing contest. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen this on this site, but you write fan fiction of Margaret Atwood's newest novel, The Heart Goes Last, put it up on Wattpad, and you can potentially win a bunch of prizes. And Margaret Atwood herself is one of the judges of the fan fiction contest. So if you've ever had a dream of having Margaret Atwood read your work, now you can have Margaret Atwood literally read your work. Um, the winners get signed books from Margaret Atwood. The top stories will be read by Margaret Atwood at Book, at Book Riot Live um, by her and some of the staff. So it's a really cool opportunity. We're also going to have an operating library from um, the Harry Potter Alliance. You bring in a book, trade it into the library on Saturday, and on Sunday you pick up a new-to-you book, which is a really great thing that the Harry Potter, Harry Potter Alliance does. Their operating library is a traveling library that they take out into the world, we're going to have a photo booth, a zine table, a whole bunch of really awesome stuff that you can participate in. Um, so yeah, not just another book conference, but a really fun, awesome participatory book conference. So you can take $20 off your full registration with the discount code NERDPARTY, all one word, N-E-R-D-P-A-R-T-Y. And we will see you at Book Riot Live presented by Bookwitty. All right. Thank you so much. I think we're going to go ahead and do our first sponsor and then we will get into it thank y'all for hanging with us here so our first sponsor is the chess queen enigma which is book three in the stoker and home series by colleen gleason this sounds so awesome okay this is really in my wheelhouse so eveline stoker and mina holmes have reluctantly agreed to act as social chaperones and undercover bodyguards for princess lorelia of betrovia already sounds really great. The two main characters here, Eveline Stoker and Mina Holmes, are the sister of Brom Stoker and the niece of Sherlock Holmes, respectively. And they are the heroines of this series. So they're undercover bodyguards for this princess who's arrived in London to deliver a letter with the location of an ancient chess queen that's been missing for all these centuries. But when this letter, which would heal a centuries-old rift between England and the Petrovians, which is, of course, not a real country, but whatever, is stolen out from under Eveline and Mina's watchful eyes, the two girls are forced into a high-stakes race to ensure that they find the chess queen before anyone else does, but particularly their foe, the Ankh. For this chess queen, it's not just a historical symbol of women's political power, which makes it volatile enough as an artifact, but it also has, like, actual literal magic power. Uh, the queen will unlock the chessboard, revealing jewels and ancient secrets and all of these great things that the Ankh would kill to possess. So it will take Mina's smarts and Eveline's strength to beat the thief and untangle this mystery before it's too late. And it's starting to get cold and a really great mystery with a Bram Stoker, Sherlock Holmes mix just sounds like just what I want to read. So check out The Chess Queen Enigma by Colleen Gleason and thank you so much for sponsoring the show. All right, let's get to some news, man. Yeah. Speaking of ancient, this is, a, I love, I love doing these. Speaking of ancient artifacts discovered randomly in very modern. Very nice, very and, nice. Let's talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs> this is such a great story. This is so random. So apparently a new t tablet from the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh or a new portion of Tablet 5 of the Epi Epic of Gilgamesh has been discovered that gives us 20 new lines of the poem. I love, I love stories about, you know, like modern day 
It's like it's straight out. It feels like it's straight out of some sort of mystery novel. And yeah, I loved, or like what was that? Oh, what was that horrible Nicolas Cage movie? National Treasure. National Treasure. Oh, yes, I love that movie. I mean, horrible. In a, yeah. <laughs> it's so bad. Dan Brown, if you're out there, I would really love a book about the oh, new different tablet of the epic of, epic of Gilgamesh. So the story behind this is that uh, when the U.S. Uh, along with various other countries invaded Iraq. There was a bunch of looting of Iraqi museums and artifacts and stuff like that. And so one of the museums um, in Iraq started paying smugglers to intercept archaeological archaeological artifacts that were on their way out of the country. So that's a, which in and of itself is super smart. So instead of whatever, trying to get the authority, like the authorities involved in this time of complete turmoil, they just went straight to the guys who were doing the selling and were like, look, if you could just give us the things for the dollars and not the people outside of the country, that would be awesome. So that's what they did. I just thought that was really smart. Yeah, and I think it's hilarious that they sold it for $800. (laughs) The museum bought it for $800, considering it is basically priceless. Yeah, so obviously the guys, the smugglers who had this tablet, didn't understand what they have. So it was like a collection of 80 or 90 tablets, according to this article, a bunch of different shapes and sizes. All of them were covered in mud. And then when the the museum's um, representative went to go bid on it or make an offer he realized what he had and was and told the guy will give you you know however much you want and what he wanted was eight hundred dollars yep so he yeah obviously didn't know what he had his hands on but um so the theory is that these were illegally unearthed from what used to be babylon where babylon was and these new lines talk about um what do they talk about? They add some of some like details about the section about the cedar forest. Like they mentioned monkeys, which isn't mentioned in any other version of the epic uh, of Gilgamesh. Um, one of the characters who, in the version that we have now, is like a barbarian ogre type figure. In this new tablet, is characterized as just a normal, like foreign ruler who likes music and stuff. So yeah, yeah, lots of cool new details in this. New, what's well, not even new. This happened in 2011. They found it in 2011. I don't know why it's like suddenly a. Yeah, well, I mean, and the th- like, it, they say that um, when it's on display, it's on display, you can see this fragment on display, and it doesn't say anything about it being new or revolutionary or providing new lines of text. So I guess it's been around for a while and just we didn't know. Yeah, I, I mean, it took somebody from ancienthistory.edu going to this museum <laughs> in Iraq and reading the little plaque that right beside it and was like, wait a minute, there is no tablet. Yeah. yeah, like there is no, those lines are totally new. There was no discovery in 2011. What is this? And he went digging and this is what he discovered. But. This is great. Like I love stories like this. Like have you been following this story about the Nazi like treasure train in Poland? What? They think yeah. Oh, my gosh. So apparently they think they've discovered, you know, of course, one of the Nazi treasure trains that you hear like about in, like movies and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They think they found one. Where? And in, in Poland, in a cave like somewhere. And like, I think, yeah, and I think it's like they found it through uh, like from like satellite imagery and stuff. But I don't think they've actually gone in and located the train, but they think they know where it is. Oh my gosh. So I love like all the, I love stories. What even is this life? I don't know, but I love it. I love it. It's so great. So yeah, this is kind of in line with the same thing. And I, I love learning stories like this because I do love reading the, these 
uh, all the thrillers that are like James Rollins and Dan Brown and like Steve Barry does them too about like, oh, this undiscovered historical thing could, you know, destroy the world or whatever. I love reading those books. I really have different feelings about like I this I think is super cool and totally rad and mind blowing. And I feel that way about this, but like this recent spate of newly discovered law, quote unquote, lost works. Oh, like, no, I, I found like that. Yeah, and it's I'm wondering why I feel so differently about it because it's sort of the same thing. Like some dude's great uncle unearths a new Sherlock Holmes story out of his attic. I'm like, oh come on, really? Whatever. Yeah, I think it's because like this was clearly a finished product. I don't like I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but I don't like reading something that was unfinished. Mm. You know, like the new Stieg Larsson novel that, you know, I read the first three of those books and I have the fourth one. I guess I'll read it at some point. But <laughs> I just I, I'm not as excited because it's it wasn't ever supposed to see the light of day. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's that makes sense. And of course, the new Harper Lee had all of its own oh, baggage God. that had nothing to do with. I know. I mean, there's nobody, like, obviously, since this was discovered in 2011 and it has just now turned into a story, there's nobody trying to make a fortune off of this. You know, like, it wasn't, it was sold for $800. It wasn't, like, auctioned off to the highest bidder or whatever. So it was just cool. Archaeology. Yeah. Do your thing. All right. Thank you, Epic of Gilgamesh. (laughs) Um, I have no good segue for this one, but whatever. Waterstones and books for Syria. Want to yeah. talk about Syria? Okay. This is so rad. See, book people are the best people. So Waterstones is a um, chain of bookstores in the UK that has launched an, an industry-wide campaign to raise a million pounds. So I don't know how many dollars that would be, but more than a million. A million pounds. Um, and the campaign is called Buy Books for Syria. So they've partnered with a bunch of authors and big publishers, like like big one, Penguin, Random House, HarperCollins, Simon, like the biggest publishers and a couple of independent publishers um, who have donated titles from, from big name author, authors, Neil Gaiman, Ali Smith, uh, a bunch of people. Yeah. Salman Rushdie, Catelyn Moran, and the proceeds, 100% of these proceeds will go towards Oxfam's Syria crisis appeal. And I just like that so much. I like this. It's like it reminds me of what I think you guys talked about on the podcast in the last couple of weeks, like Patrick Ness's Mm -hmm. uh, initiative to raise money. I love it when I hear it restores my faith in humanity. Yeah, it really does, especially since um, and this article is in the bookseller. They note that, you know, it's October. We're leading up to Christmas. This is a big book buying season. uh, And instead of focusing on that, this is when the money would be made for Waterstones. Instead, they're focusing on making tables for books that they will make no dollars on. Yeah. So the, all of these tables, um, all these titles are displayed on tables in the front of the store in all of their 280 shops. They've got stickers that say buy books for Syria on them. So they're very knowingly giving up, giving up profit, like just straight up giving up profit. Um, yeah. Good. I like that. I like, I like, I don't ever, I recognize that, you know, Waterstones is a business and, you know, publishing is a business. These aren't things, you know, that, they're not nonprofits, they're businesses. So when you see them willingly giving up dollars, especially because, you know, bookstores aren't having the easiest time right now. You know, yeah. publishing is going through this thing that it's going through. <laughs> it's it's dollars are important. And so it's nice to see that even though um, you know, there are those issues that things like this can still happen. I love it. Yeah. I do. It makes it makes me feel like all warm and fuzzy out inside, which is a little bit of a weird feeling. <laughs> what is, I'm like, what is this? 
what is this? <laughs> this satisfaction towards the publishing industry? I don't know what to do with this dude. My heart is warm and happy. <laughs> I, I don't understand. Where's my ice cold heart? Like, I don't. But I like it. Like, it's a, it's great. Um, it's, I feel like it's a great, it's a great, great thing, especially because it's, you, it's just, it's horrible what is going on and you feel so helpless. And this is a, you know, very, very simple way for people in the UK. You can just walk into a store, buy one of these books on the table with a sticker on it. It says it has a sticker that says buy books for Syria and you know, you've done something. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Patrick Ness, when, um, yeah, we did talk about that on the podcast when Patrick Ness did a fundraiser for Save the Children. Um, which is a charity that's focusing a lot right now on helping Syrian refugees who are children. Um, he said that he just got tired of feeling outraged and not being able to do anything, do anything about it. And so he set up a fundraiser where you could donate um, whatever money you could spare and he would match up to $10,000 and it just exploded. Yeah. Internet, and they raised over 600,000 pounds, which is well over a million dollars for Save the Children, which is awesome. Uh, the guys from Oxfam said that out of this 1 million... Um, well, all of it. So the one million pounds raised is going to go towards its program of delivering clean water to 150,000 people in Syria or providing support to the tens of thousands of people in um, Jordan, Syrians who have fled to Jordan. So, you know, there's no sign of this conflict in Syria ending. All of these millions of people have been displaced or are trying to leave uh, to get to safety. And yeah, you do feel so helpless. So it is nice to see. I love seeing people in an industry that I care about step up and do something about a situation. You know, we can all agree that this is horrible and that something should be done. Yeah. You know, these people are fleeing violence and their homes are destroyed and, you know, go buy a book, do a good thing. <laughs> Definitely. So if you're in the UK, go visit Waterstones. Good job, Waterstones. Yay. Um, let's see. While we're talking about not being angry at publishers, let's, <laughs> let's just jump down to this Hachette story. Um, this is actually probably more of a follow-up because I think Rebecca and I talked about this last week about oh, yeah. the MLO's diversity survey. Yeah, And I think it was that Penguin Random House that signed up, if I'm remembering yeah. that right. Yes. Um, so Lee and Lowe is an independent publisher that focuses a lot on publishing diverse voices. Their tagline is about everyone for everyone. And they are doing or trying to do this baseline diversity survey of the employees uh, in the publishing industry because there's this functioning theory that the reason why publishing has such a, a diversity issue is because most of the employees overwhelmingly uh, in publishing are white. And so it just creates this, you know, vacuum, not vacuum, but like cycle of white people work in the industry. So they publish books by white authors. So books by white authors sell more. So they get more contracts, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. And so Lee and Lowe just wanted some data to, to really back that up and see what could be done about it. And they got tons of response from small independent publishers who were volunteering to sign up for the survey, but they were having some trouble getting the bigger, you know, the big five and the big houses to sign up, which was not surprising. And honestly, I never expected any I of that. I never expected, <laughs> honestly. Uh, but then a survey was circulating, a change.org survey asking the big five to jump on board. And now uh, last week, Penguin Random House did. Um, Macmillan already had, and I didn't know this. When we talked about it last week, we said that Penguin Random House was the first. But some one of the commenters uh, on the post for last week's podcast said that Macmillan was actually the first big name. So Macmillan signed up, and then Penguin Random House, and now Hachette. Yeah. So who's left? Simon Schuster. That's three, right? Macmillan. Yeah, Hachette, and then Harper. Harper Collins. Collins. Right. Harper Collins. Right. So, so Harper Collins. And Come Simon. on. We see you out there. <laughs> and now that the other big three 
have signed up. You really just have no reason. I know. And like some of the other names on this list too, like Workman is huge, like especially even in academic publishing. Abram. Yeah, Scholastic was like, you know, a lot of the We Need Diverse book stuff is about children's books. So that's as huge as Scholastic is participating. Bloomsbury, that's a big one. Candlewick Press. I love Candlewick. I love Candlewick. Oh my gosh. Candlewick is a great, they've, they've, you know, they do a lot of sponsorship stuff around Book Riot, but they're also just an excellent publisher of really, really excellent. They are. And they've been really upping their comics game, which of course has been, you know, catching my eye. And it's, it's awesome. Yeah. The books they put out. And same thing with Chronicle, too. Mm-hmm. Chronicle does, does a lot of those kind of fun gift-type books that you would put on a, you know, coffee table or give us a gag gift. But they've yeah. kind of been branching out from that as well. So a lot of their stuff is really interesting right now. I remember once um, I was complaining about how hard it is to find uh, children's books that feature human children yes. of color. Um, and, you know, my kids are... I guess they're brown. I don't really know. I mean, I'm going to let them decide how they want to, whatever, identify themselves. But I'm partially Filipino, and, and they, my husband is white, so my kids just look white. Like, whatever. That's how they're going to experience life. But I want them to read books with people who don't look like them so that they realize that that's the reality of life. And it's hard to find those sometimes. And I was complaining about it on Twitter. And then one of the publicists from Candlewick sent me a box of books from their press that was like, all like I think one of the books is called The Skin We're In and it's it's oh, about man. like being comfortable and like how cute new babies are of all colors and it was just really nice and I appreciated it a lot. So Kindlewick has earned my eternal loyalty. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's amazing. Anyway, good job, Hachette. Way to sign up for the Leon Lowe survey. I yeah. cannot wait to get this information. I don't know when there this is gonna be done. I have a feeling there's gonna be an entire podcast episode about the results though. I am sure. Like, oh, we're going might to just, dive into this so hard. It's going to be called Look at All the White Folk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to be it. Yes. Uh, anyway, maybe it should just be you and I on that yeah, episode. Yeah, I know. It should. <laughs> Let the brown girls do it. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Where do you want to go next? I, I would love to talk about Kobo. All right. Kobo has launched a loyalty program. Yeah. And it is called Super Points. And it's kind of modeled on the mileage reward programs offered by airlines. So it rewards customers for buying ebooks and digital magazines from Kobo. So the idea <laughs> behind it. You're like, so. I, yes, I have issues if you haven't, if you haven't gotten that by my tone. But on the free tier, Kobo customers can earn up to 100 points for every $10 spent in the Kobo store. Or you can sign up for a $10 a year VIP membership and earn points twice as fast so that would be 200 points for every ten dollars um and you get other vip benefits like 10 percent off um some titles and getting one free ebook a year so you have to get 2400 points to purchase additional ebooks from kobo so it and it depends on okay so it says that the ebooks are listed with two prices with the points price Five or six times higher than the cash price. So Wait, if you're, really? Yeah. So if I haven't even looked at that yet. If oh you're looking God. at a book that is, okay, the example in this article, this article is from the digital reader. An example is an ebook which sells for $8.69, which what most ebooks, I think, unless you're getting something on sale or priced at a $9.99 price point mm-hmm. um, or higher. Like I feel like $9.99 is about as low as you go, unless you're going with something on sale. So if you're 
doing an ebook for $8.69, that's 4,800 points, which at the normal reward level is $480 in the Kobo store for one free ebook. Wow. I well, so don't like, like that. <laughs> 4,800, 4, wait, how many? $480. Right. So you have to spend 400, almost $500 to get one ebook. All right. And so like 50 books. Yeah. Man, that does not seem like, I mean, maybe that's just me, but that does not seem like an incentive. I was not, I mean, I thought this was a cool thing. Um, I'm always here for loyalty reward stuff, but I hadn't done the math. And yeah. that, is, that is not, that is not great. I think I would like to know how many ebooks the average Kobo reader buys. That's what I would like to know as well, because I have a feeling it's less than 50 books a year. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that many people who don't work in books or who are not book bloggers who read a book a week. Yeah, I don't either. And most of the people I know who are buying ebooks are are stocking up when stuff's on sale. Yeah. You know, oh, this is on sale, so I'll buy it to read it later. Or they're like library, you know. Like yeah. I've got friends who read two or three romance novels a week, but they always but they get them from the library. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just I think this would be the kind of thing where like if you're already a Kobo customer. It's a nice thing. Yeah. In the same way that, I guess it's in the same way that airline miles are like, if I'm already going to fly United, I might as well use my air miles card, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, I don't, I have, I have accounts, I have a frequent flyer accounts with every major airline and I just use whichever one like is most convenient. Yeah, no. Members, so. But I would never just like, I would never purposefully pick an airline because I was a member in the same way that like, this is not good enough for me to purposefully buy a book from Kobo. Right. I, uh, I do have a Kobo. I have multiple Kobos. I've had them for years. <laughs> I really like their hardware. So I stick with their, uh, their devices. <laughs> their universe. <laughs> I don't think I would sign up for this. Like, and oh, I read a lot. I just, I mean, I don't know. I'd probably sign up just to have it, but this would not entice me to mm-hmm. buy a book from Kobo as opposed to from somewhere else, you know, buy an ebook from somewhere else to read on my iPad. I don't know. I'm not a fan of this. <laughs> I wonder like what, um, at what price point would it be worth it? Like at what point would you say, like how many, how much money? I'm a, I'm a person that I agree with the, I think, uh, I don't want to pay too much more than $10 for an ebook. Just yeah, I, I mean, like, like how many book? How many books? I think maybe ten. Ten for yeah. free. Like yeah. for every ten books, get one book for free. Or just, or maybe even coupons. Like I ten ten percent off doesn't really entice me, but maybe you could get after you buy ten books, you could get a book for fifty percent off, or something like that would be more enticing to me than spending five hundred dollars to get one ebook. Yeah, I agree. And I'm also here for 50% off. Yeah, yeah, like and also Kobo frustrates me because even a lot of their promotions are for limited titles. So you can get 20% off an ebook, but it's one of these eight ebooks. Which yeah. I'm like, just send me the coupon and let me buy what I want to buy. Because yeah. chances are I don't want to buy one of the, you know, eight ebooks you have listed. All right. Well, if y'all out there have Kobos and are into Kobo or have signed up for this and are trying it out, do let us know 
how, what you think or yeah. how it's for you. Um, cause I, I really want to know if people out there, if Kobo's existing audience is into this or just like won't use it or thinks it's worthless or thinks it's awesome or, you know, what you guys think. Cause yeah, I'm also, not a Kobo user, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the super VIP membership or whatever it is. Um, it sounds like it could have some intriguing perks, but this article is pretty sketchy. And so if you have taken the plunge or have looked into it let us know if you know because ten dollars a year isn't a lot it's the price of you know one ebook mm-hmm. so maybe if the perks are really good it might be worth it yeah we'll see let us know yes let's talk about blurb sausage oh my god <laughs> blurbs blurbs so there is an article in npr that was making its rounds around the book internet um this week that's kind of basically a history of book blurbs. And if you are unfamiliar, a book blurb is, is oh gosh, how to describe it? Like a, a promotional sentence from another author cover. It's basically the quote you find from a famous author on the front of a book. Yeah. Or the back or inside yeah. black, whatever. Um, have you been blurbed before? I have. Yeah, I so. have blurbed <laughs> books before. <laughs> I was thinking about this when they were, I mean, but none of them were on purpose. Like I didn't say what I said about the books that I've been blurbed about like to get blurb, they just stumbled across what I had said and put it on there, which is fine. Yeah, there's been a couple they've actually emailed me and asked me for a blurb, but more often it's just it gets pulled from something I say on Book Riot or on my blog or whatever. Okay, so anyway, this um, history of blurbing is really fascinating to me. So apparently all this stuff up top I wasn't that interested in, but the first blurb was on Leaves of Grass which is unsurprising mm-hmm. because Walt Whitman was nothing if not a self-promoter. And it's actually on the spine of the book, and it's from Ralph Waldo Emerson and says, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. <laughs> <laughs> which is so great. That's such a great 1856 blurb. It's uh-huh. so, uh, but it's just the one, and it's on, it's on the spine, not on the cover. Um, so that was the first blurb, 1856. That's cool. And then anyway, so you got to scroll all the way down to the the bottom. The top half of this article is like authors talking about how they get blurbs, which who cares. But the at the bottom, there was a um, audience research firm called the Codex Group that was that did a like a study about the effects that blurb ha- blurbs have on book sales, if any. Um, and so it says he's worked with every major publisher and a bunch of retailers to test the sales success of a book's cover before it hits store shelves. So using samples of several thousand participants, it doesn't say exactly how many, um, they, the company tests three or four possible variations of the book's cover, including one that has no blurbs on it. And then they test how the participants pick the book they want to buy. And he said that he's found that two factors are key to a blurb having any sort of success at all. Do you care about who is doing the blurbing? And, you know, is it somebody who matters to you? Um, and is it something that's really bringing some value to your understanding of the book? So these general blurbs that are just like, whatever, engrossing, page turner, <laughs> loved it, unprintdownable, do nothing. No one cares about that. It, not even that like readers don't care, but like they don't care and it doesn't at, at all affect how they are going to spend their money Yeah, on buying books. I guess even if it's a big, a big name blurbing it, I mean, then you'd get one of the two things. Um, anyway. But when the when the blurber is a reader's favorite author, the company's numbers show that recommendation that those recommendations have only a modest influence on their buying habits. So when they were asked about the book that they bought last, only two and a half percent of participants discovered it through the recommendation of another author that they liked. About one percent were persuaded to buy the book because of that blurb, which is about 
the same number of participants who discovered their last book um, in a search engine. <laughs> well, so people randomly like Googling, what should I read next? will get you the same <laughs> amount of book sales as somebody blurbing um, your book. Do you pay attention to blurbs? Um, sort of. <laughs> yeah. I don't pay attention to the words of the blurb. I don't care what's being said, but I do pay attention to who is blurbing a book because the, the people that publishers and publicists seek out um, to blurb a book says a lot about who they think the intended audience is. Yes. Um, and says a lot about what genre the book is in before you even pick it up. So there is some usefulness to blurbs, but that's, and that's the thing at the very, very end of this um, article, they talk about how blurbs are actually only useful pre-publication. And I agree with that. I do too. I completely agree with that. The publicists get books blurbed and then they send those blurb books out to bloggers and to people in the book media and to booksellers. Yeah. And we are the, the people who take those into mind and take those into consideration when we decide what we're going to cover. Exactly. Like, I will tell you right now, like, when a book comes into my house, which happens, you know, God, like, thir- something like 30 books a week. Yeah. A blurb will, um, a blurb from somebody I like will put it on the keep shelf as opposed to the immediate just get rid of it shelf. Same. Like, yeah. it does make a difference to me, but it doesn't make a difference... I think what, once you get past that, like that initial gatekeeping that I do, it doesn't really make much of a difference. It doesn't make a difference to books that I buy. Yeah, exactly. If I'm in the bookstore and I'm browsing, I usually have, a, you know, I've got a running list in my head of books that I'm interested in. I've got my TBR, you know, on my phone. Um, so a blurb when I'm out and about is not going to make a difference in me picking up and purchasing a book. And I think that's true of most readers, that they they... They pick something up because they heard about it on NPR or they pick something up because their friend recommended it to them or they read about it on a site or they heard about it on Twitter or whatever. Um, and a blurb isn't going to make them pick it up more or, you know, because they were already going to. Um, where it makes a difference is getting on NPR, getting out on Twitter from yeah. somebody you trust who's a book blogger, getting on BookTube and all of that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy because the business of blurbs is just insane. Like how much time and effort people spend into getting blurbs, how many requests that popular authors get to give blurbs. It's just, it's insane. Yeah. So I guess it kind of does matter. It does affect your book sales in as much, in as much as it'll make a bookseller or I hate this word, but it'll make a tastemaker. It sounds so stupid, but it's true. Whatever. Like it's fine. It's true. Um, it'll make a tastemaker pay attention to the book that you've sent them, especially if it's unsolicited. Uh, and then if that person decides to go on and publicize your book for you or talk about it on their platform, then that probably helps, you know, buzz and book sales in like a, like a tertiary way, like yeah, three steps removed from the actual process of somebody buying the book. But I don't know that it really matters to a person standing in a Barnes and Noble or sitting on amazon.com, you know? Um, I agree. And I don't think so I, that way. I don't think you can quantify the uh, influence of blurbs or how much they do influence sales because they do it in such a tertiary way that, you know, it just, it's not something you can really, I put forth in statistics, I guess, which sucks yeah. because I love statistics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah. And it's so much a case of like friends doing other authors who are also their friends of favor. Yeah. yeah. It is very much a back scratching back yeah. and forth thing, which just feels not great sometimes. So, 
And they're not, yeah, which means that they're not necessarily trustworthy, but they are helpful, like I said before, in helping you determine who the who the book's audience is. Right. Like, if I see a quote from Jennifer Weiner on the cover, I, I'll know what the intended audience is for that versus, yeah. you know, some on Rushdie, which a Rushdie blurb will always get me to at least pick up and look at a book. <laughs> he is one. All right. So that's how the blurb sausage, sausage is made. Yep. If you're at all interested in that, which I am because I'm nerdy. All right, let's talk about Band Books Week, and then we can do our second sponsor. So, Band Books Week is over, yes? It ended on Sunday. Okay, Um, excuse me. So, Band Books Week, the ALA does Band Books Week every year to bring attention to books that are being challenged um, in libraries and school libraries and uh, bookstores across the country, really across the world. And so, Boing Boing put out this, article based on a State of America's Libraries report about the top 10 most banned and challenged books in America in 2014 that I thought was really interesting. The most interesting fact on it being that 80% of the 2014 top 10 list of frequently challenged books are by diverse authors or have and or contain cultural content. So 80% of the most banned and challenged books in America are by or about brown people and their problems. Yep. <laughs> that does not surprise me at all me neither um you know when well I'll, well let me rewind i might retract that the thing when i think banned books i think of like ulysses like people who don't want to read about sex or who think something is pornographic yeah um that's usually what i think when i think of a book being banned is that somebody thinks it's icky but what's really happening is that people don't want to read about cultural experiences outside of their own right and I think, I mean, a lot, there are a lot of comics on this list because I think people, because it's a vis- much more visual medium than prose, mm-hmm. you, you see what's on the page. Like, for example, they talk a lot about Saga, which is an amazing comic uh, by Brian Vaughn and Fiona Staples. And they're, the cover of the first trade is a brown woman breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And you don't see anything, but you can see her breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And it's just... It's an it's a comic that is all about family, but it's banned for anti-family. <laughs> so Who <ridiculous>. knew? <laughs> Can I tell you that I Saga was the book that got me into comics. That for- is the book that got it. I feel like that is the comic that everybody reads, whether you're into quote unquote into comics or not. It yes. is one yes. of the best comics. I mean, it's going to go into history as one of the best comics ever written. Ever. I, I like at this point, you know, I'm two years into being a comic book reader and. It's still my favorite. Like, it's still... And not just because it was the thing that got me into it, but because it's just so good. It's yeah. just so, And I remember the first time I saw coverage of the book, and it was that cover of the first trade with Alana breastfeeding her baby. Yes. She was brown, and she was a mother, and she looked so hardcore. And I, you know, my kids were two years old, and I had never seen a woman who looked like me and who was a mom and who could, like, kick major butt on a book of any format, ever. I think they made a conscious choice with that cover to say, this is who this book is for. Yeah, I do too. Or, you know, it's for anybody, but, you know, this is what this book is. And I I love Saga. I mean, I could go on and on, but I won't. But I think one <laughs> of the ones that uh, really strikes me on this list is Drama by Raina Telgemeier. Yeah, that's so that's a middle ten. Yeah, it's a middle grade comic. Um, it's, you know fifth through eighth graders and there is the reason it is banned is it's sexually explicit (laughs) and there is 
not, I mean, it's about a bunch of middle schoolers putting on a play at their school. It's a graphic novel. And uh, the one thing that is in it is there's a kiss between two guys. There it is. And that is sexually explicit. It has gay people in it. Yes. And that is something that drives me crazy. Constantly, I see people, you know, tweeting about links, tweeting links to panels content saying it's not safe for work. And by not safe for work, there means it has stuff about gay people in it. And that that's not. Oh, burn that down. Yeah, right. (laughs) Oh, my God. It makes me so mad because that's if you I, I, I can't even put it into words because it makes me so mad. It's just so, let's just say, OK, so the list is number one, the most banned and challenged book is The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. No surprise there. That's on there every every year, yeah. every single year. Uh, number two is Persepolis by Marjane Satrapi. Number three is Antango Makes Three. Oh, my gosh. Which is, of course, the book about the, the penguins. That promotes the homosexual agenda. Promotes the homosexual <laughs> agenda. I just love it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wear a t-shirt that says promotes the homosexual agenda. Oh, my agenda. God. Uh, number four is The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Uh, it's Perfectly Normal by Robbie Harris. I've actually never read that. That's number five. Number six is Saga. Number seven is The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini. Number eight is The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Also has gay people in it. Number nine, uh, Stolen Life by J.C. Duggar. Really? Yeah. Uh, reasons. Drug, alcohol, smoking. Oh, my gosh. Oh, dear. This is 1952. Uh, drugs, alcohol, and smoking, offensive language, sexually explicit. Um, Of course. Oi, I'm rated in. Yeah. And unsuited for age group. Uh, and then number 10 is drama. So, so obviously, the lesson here <clears throat> is that we are uncomfortable with the experiences of people of color and LGBTQ. Yes. People. And we don't want to talk about it. And we don't want our kids to talk about it or know about it. And, uh, yeah. That's pretty much that. The Aussies say unsuited to age group. Unsuited to age group. Unsuited to age group. Unsuited to age group. And Um, it's so important for kids, especially teenagers, to uh, read about the things they're going through and the things they're facing. And if you want to stick your head in the sand and pretend like your teenager isn't dealing with things like sex, drugs, alcohol, mm. you know, doesn't have people they know are gay, doesn't have, you know, non-white friends. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, then put your kid's head in the sand. It's your kid. I don't care. But when people like do this thing where they challenge a book and they try to get it removed from an yes. entire curriculum or they try to get it removed from an entire library, when you're starting to make decisions for other people's kids, that's when you've crossed, you know, you've There's a them. difference between not liking a thing and saying a thing should not exist. Right, You right. can not like whatever you don't like and you can make whatever decisions for your kid that you want to make. That's your right as a parent, but you can't make it for everybody else's kids. And, you know, there was an article that was making the rounds this week or last week. Was it, I think it was Slate, that banned books week, it's a crock. Oh my God, thing. yes. Of course, slate. Of course, um, and the title was "Banned Books Week as a Crock." And the author was was trying to make this argument that since a book hasn't been banned by the government in so long in this country, that bans book banned Books Week is no longer necessary. Like we've already won, and it was just the most intellectually dishonest and ridiculously stupid thing that I'd read in a minute, like a hot minute, because anybody who talks to an actual librarian or talks to an actual bookseller or talks to anybody who's actually in the business of getting books to people's hands will will be able to tell you that um, the issue of, of book bannings and book challenges in this country is almost entirely an issue of race and sexuality. Right. And to pretend like because we haven't banned Ulysses since 1960 or whatever, the battle is over is to really completely ignore 
the experiences of racism that authors of color and LGBTQ authors face and continue to face. And um, so, you know, I mean, Slate puts up a lot of screens that don't make any sense to me, but that one is actually... I that's like kind of, that hurt like that that damage that's damage it's, it's not just it's not just that it's stupid and we can just roll our eyes at it and move on to the next stupid article on the internet that's actually damaging because banned books we banned books uh is are sorry banned books are so sex oriented and race oriented it's a race issue and it's yeah. a lgbtq issue and to pretend like it's not is disingenuous at best and damaging at worst. Yeah, so I can't decide if the article was just um, ignorant or which I guess is more acceptable because the alternative is that the author of that article was purposefully ignoring the fact that banned books affect that, you know, 80 percent of the of the books banned in 2014 are by brown people in there and are about their experiences so either you don't know that or you know it and are purposefully ignoring it which makes you racist yes so and that's all there is about that so whatever anyway i didn't mean to go on a rant about that stupid article it's but so frustrating it was so frustrating yeah. let's talk about a sponsor or something happy for a second um so our second sponsor is scribd love scribd i'm trying to get into like a positive mental place now um <laughs> Scribd is a subscription book service that gives you access to over a million books and audiobooks. You can head over to scribd.com slash bookriot to get started for a, um, a free month, which is great. Scribd has books from some of the best publishers, big houses like HarperCollins and Simon & Schuster and uh, Hunt Mifflin Hofcourt to innovative small presses, McSweeney's, Ten House, Counterpoint. They've got graphic novels and comics, which is awesome. Um, and they also have over 40,000 audiobooks, including some of the big new releases that some of them aren't even available at my library yet. So that's really neat. Um, so more importantly, Scribd, make sure that you can find uh, your way to books you're going to love. They've got hundreds of collections curated by their editorial team. Um, some, uh, well, well, one at least collection that was curated by us, which is nice. Um, and as you read and rate the books uh, on Scribd, it will start to tailor recommendations for you based on books that you have loved or not loved. So if you give something one star, it's going to not so much recommend books in that same vein to you. And the more that you rate, the better the, the algorithm becomes at figuring out what you like. So if you're on Scribd and you've been reading, make sure that you are reading. I'm like, log. I'm on my phone right now logging into my Scribd account so I can see what's in my TBR so I can tell you. Okay, so right now I've got uh, Janet Mock's Real, uh, Redefining Realness, which is her memoir, uh, Green Girl by Kate Zambrano, Sarah J. Moss's Throne of Glass, which is a huge YA series. Oh, I've been yeah. to start. The first one is on Scribd, so you can go ahead and get started. Um, this is the Story of a Happy Marriage by Ann Patchett. I've got that up. Oh, and up next I'm going to read Misty Copeland's Life in Motion. Um, Misty Copeland, of course, is a ballerina. She is the first African-American, I think, prima ballerina for the American Ballet Society. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway, she's got a memoir. She's so hardcore. I love her so much. And that's on Scribd, so you can read that too. You can go to scribd.com slash book right now. They'll set you up with a free month to get you started. So that's 30 days of unlimited reading along with one free audio. And you your subscription, you'll get one free audiobook every month and unlimited reading. And of course, you'll be supporting Book Riot, which is Yay. nice. We do appreciate it. Win win. So, scribd.com slash Book Riot. And thank you for sponsoring the show. All right. Speaking of happy things, yes. let's talk about this, this elf. Oh, man. Okay. So, Harry Potter fans are trying to set Dobby free by leaving their socks. For him. Okay. <laughs> That's the headline for this. It's a BuzzFeed article, and that is the headline, and I love it. 
It's so a- on in if you go to the Warner Brothers Studio Tour in the UK, you can go on like a Harry Potter tour, which I've never been on, but as a diehard Harry Potter fan, I kind of want to go just to go on this tour. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things you can see is a statue, I guess, of Dobby. Mm-hmm. But Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. apparently not knowing Dobby as well as the Harry Potter fans do, has put Dobby behind a glass case. And fans aren't happy. So they are leaving their socks at Dobby's display <laughs> to free <laughs> my smelly dirty clothes I know that's why I was like I hope these people are bringing their clean socks from home and not like taking off their smelly socks and leaving them but I have a feeling they're just taking off their smelly socks oh yeah well it certainly looks that they don't look clean no um so so Dobby is in a, a whatever I mean it looks like a model yeah, and I think it's the model they used maybe at the end because he's got he he's yeah. got spoiler yeah spoiler I don't know if this is even a spoiler alert it's got the blood on the chest and yeah. the eyes are closed so I think it's probably the prop that Harry buried oh oh Dobby I know it's, that's like that, that was that was hard yeah so if you are unfamiliar with Harry with the Harry Potter situation which. I don't know that any of the <laughs> listeners are unfamiliar with the Harry Potter situation. Um, but Dobby is a house elf in Harry Potter, and he's such a beloved secondary character. He is adorable. And the mythology here is that in or- they're slaves. Um, these little house elves are slaves. And in order to be freed, their master has to give them an article of clothing. Yes. And so in the second Harry Potter novel, uh, Harry tricked the Malfoys into giving away their elf Dobby by putting his sock in a book and handing it to Mr. Malfoy who threw it at Dobby and gave him clothes and therefore Dobby was free. So that's where the sock thing came from. Yeah. So Harry Potter fans are always so, they're like, they're so predictably soft-hearted and great. I know. I just love it. So anyway, leave your dirty laundry for Dobby the household. Yes, or maybe bring your clean sock. I bet that's maybe a better idea yes. because you know, like some poor janitor has to clean up after all of these people. <laughs> oh <laughs> man! All right, so let's do let's do the Nobel thing last, okay. and we'll wrap it up. So I have no news here other than the Nobel Prize is going to be awarded on Thursday. Do um, you have a favorite? Some of your ah, I don't know. I don't. I'm so bad at this game. Like. I didn't predict Alice Monroe. That came out of left field. I'd never yeah. heard of Patrick Mariano. Me neither. Yeah. Not, it's not rare for like American readers. For, I made a joke this morning on Twitter that something like this Thursday, the Nobel Prize will be announced, a.k.a. the day when millions of American readers go, who? Yes, I saw that. It is true, though. True, sadly. You know, I mean, only 3% of books published in America are, are in translation. So we are woefully unfamiliar with the, not, the, the fiction of the world. Yes, um, so I'm, I'm predicting that it's going to be someone I've never heard of, which is sad for me, but also great. Cause I don't have a new author to check out, but I'm predicting, I, I agree. I think it's going to be somebody that we don't know, but I am rooting for Murakami because I love every, Murakami. Every single year. I hope that it's Murakami. I know. And just, <laughs> no, not so far, but I love him. And I think he is so great. And so I'm hopeful crossing my fingers. Do Maybe. they give out? They don't give out posthumous Nobels. Do I don't they? think so. Hey, man. I don't think uh, so. 
I was hoping that maybe Clarice Lispector could get one, but yeah. she's been dead since like the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> but she's having a moment right now. She is. In her yeah. short stories published by New Directions, and it's amazing. Plug for that right there. Um, so this article in the Guardian says that the uh, the announcement will be unveiled at one p.m. local time in Stockholm. And, of course, there are betting firms throughout the world yeah. that take bets. Um, so the front runners are Murakami. Um, how am I? Oh, man, I'm going to butcher this. Oh, God, yeah. Noguji Wathiango? Pretty good. Maybe? Okay. He's a Kenyan author. Like, I, I recognize the name, and I've seen his books. I just have yeah. never said it. Um, Americans, Philip Roth and Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, Irish Booker winner John Benville yeah. is so tipped to be a front runner. There was some more, there were some new, uh, dark, two dark horses have emerged this year. The Hungarian writer, Lord have mercy, Laszlo Krasnahorkai, I'm just not even going to try. Krasnahorkai? Krasnahorkai? Sure. I mean, like, no disrespect, I've just never said it out loud. I'm sure his work is awesome. Um, He's won a Man Booker International Award, so his odds went 50 to 1 and 25 to 1. Um. And the Korean poet Ko Eun, whose odds went from 40 to 1 to 20 to 1 for some reason. I did. Was there an award? It doesn't, it doesn't say, say why those odds have moved. But um, so the Man Booker winner, the Hungarian writer, whose name I'm not going to try to say again, is 25 to 1. Um, I don't know. I'm just going to, I always say Murakami because it's just a safe. Yeah, it's a safe bet. He, he is so deserving. Like, I think, I he's, love to I think he's too popular, honestly. That is very, very possible. He's just too well-known. And I keep thinking that maybe Rushdie will win one day, but I think he's also too popular. I don't think I could ever... I don't think my heart could handle having that hope. Like, Rushdie is my favorite. Number one, he is my favorite author. And so I don't think my heart could handle that hope. Having... <laughs> getting a no-go. We, sh- we should say Marilyn Robinson hasn't won yet, Have has she? She hasn't, but I don't think she... I don't think she has a big enough body of work. Yeah, that's true. We should She's say that. Just for Jeff and Rebecca, though, we should we should throw her. In I know. There. I know, but I agree. I mean, I would love to see her win it, yeah. but I don't. I don't. I mean, she's written like five? like four, four or five novels, novels right? Yeah. yeah, that's just not. I don't think that's really enough for a Nobel. Yeah. Um, all the people that I can think of that I'd like to win are either Americans or are really popular in America, which yeah. makes me think they probably won't win. Yeah. Which is. Which is a good thing, I think, because we really should be. We as should a, be aware of more literature should, than international literature than what we are. Yeah, I mean, we talk about diversity a lot, obviously, on this podcast and on the site, um, and we don't necessarily mean international diversity, but we should, should. <laughs> yeah. focus on it a little bit more, so or a lot more. Um, so well, you're reading a lot in translation right now, too. Well, yeah, well, I'm a judge of the, the 2016 Best Translated Book Award, so yeah. it's actually all that I'm reading right now and has been all that I've been reading for, like, three months. And Do is you all have English. any interesting reflections for us of your three months of international translated it's reading? It's so hard. It's so hard. I tell you what. Like, it's just um, a lot of... I don't know the the thought process behind what books get selected to be translated. I assume it has something to do with good book sales in another country that they think is going to sell well here, but it's a lot of really depressing yeah. literature. So, um, which makes sense because a lot of countries are going through tumultuous situations right now. And so I'm just reading a lot about like war veterans committing suicide and, you know, refugee situations and all of this it's just, just really like it's hard but necessary and I'm glad I'm doing it so yeah. anyway yeah check out the best translated book award we'll announce the long list in March and the short list in May I mean or the winner 
in May, I think. I don't remember. Anyway, I'll leave a link in the show. I'll leave a link in the show. And I think that's our show. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It was totally last minute. I sent someone a Slack message and was like, hey, when are you on the podcast? I was like, uh, give me 10 minutes to finish my fried chicken and read over the links. Oh, wait, we forgot to do a new book. We oh, yeah. To do new yeah. Books. Okay, so we got two. The first, uh, Carry On by Rainbow Rowell comes out this week, which if you read Fangirl, uh, the main character in Fangirl, Kath, writes what is kind of Harry Potter fan fiction. Um, sort of. It's it's a Harry Potter-ish universe that this character is writing fan fiction about and the fans of fangirl <laughs> get meta were so into this concept that rainbow actually wrote a whole book about this universe within her universe so if you're a fan of rainbow roll I, I never say it right it's Rowell like Rowell like and I know that in my brain yeah if you're a fan of rainbow Rowell and you liked fangirl then that the harry potter ish book that she talks about in that book she's not written it so you can go check it out it's um slash fic yeah. And I guess it's supposed to sort of be a Malfoy-Harry situation, but there are vampires, and it's not actually Harry Potter. Um, so, yeah, check it out. And then you're going to tell us about the second one. Yes, I'm telling you about Killing and Dying by Adrian Tomin. And I love... Adrian Tomin is a giant of the um, comics world. Of course, I'm talking about a comic, because <laughs> hello, I'm me. So he... And this is a new book of short stories. He does a lot of short stories, but... One of my favorite comics of all time is called Shortcomings, and it's it's basically the most searing portrayal of kind of being a outsider in U.S. society as a person of color. You know, he writes and he writes. He's so insightful, and he uses the form of comics so incredibly well. So I'm just I'm an unabashed fan, so I'm really looking forward to this collection. And it's from Drawn and Quarterly, which does amazing independent comics. And so it is um, killing and dying, and I'm very excited about it. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. So, of course, you can find us at Book Riot uh, on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at I'm Amanda Nelson. Swipen is on Twitter at S. Krishna? Yes, S. Krishna. Yeah, nailed it. Yeah. Dang, I am so good. Uh, thank you so much to our sponsors. Uh, for sponsoring the show. Don't forget about Book Riot Live. Take 20 bucks off of your full registration with the promo code NERDPARTY and come party with us for two days. Two days of awesome. Thousand other book lovers. Yeah. Like actual happy dreams that I've had before in my life. It's going to happen in November in New York City. So come hang out with us and I will talk to y'all later. Mm-hmm.